There are um, a number of important questions that Christians, thoughtful Christians, uh, wrestle with, ought to wrestle with in the course of their lives. One of the questions that we're wrestling with in this series, which, if the Lord is willing, will conclude next week with the Tenth Commandment, one of those questions is, what exactly is the role of the law in my life? It doesn't sound like a terribly complicated question, but the outworking, the answering of that question tends to be a rather difficult one. Uh, on the one hand, we, we typically have a decent answer to the question. Where it gets a little bit more murky is when we actually start to live it. Because most of us, most of us, including the one looking at you and talking to you right now, are closet legalists. We, we believe, at least in part, though we would vehemently deny the legitimacy of legalism, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel as though, we think as though we're in a better place with the Lord if we have kept certain rules and regulations. Rules and regulations that may not be directly biblical. There are three answers to the question, what is the role of the law in my life? Uh, two of them are heresies. It's a really razor's edge. I've already mentioned one of them. One of them is legalism, advocating obedience to extra-biblical laws. You have to attend this church to be a real Christian. Ladies cannot dare to wear pants. You have to be reading from the King James Version only. And all of these kinds of extra-biblical laws that certain gatherings, certain assemblies will hold out beyond the word that will make you a real, true Christian. And some of you come out of situations like that. The second heresy is the flip side of that. It's the big word that you hear come out of my mouth from time to time. It's called antinomianism. Don't let it fool you. Anti means a negation. Nomos, it's the rare time I'll speak Greek to you, is the word, the Greek word for law. So antinomianism is simply the belief that the Christian has no obligation to the law. So where the legalist wants to make laws... The antinomian wants to do away entirely with all because, after all, you're free in Christ. So the law really doesn't have any effect, doesn't have any role in your life. Now, I'm going to be careful here because I don't want to say the true answer is in the middle of this because it's not a continuum where there's antinomianism here and legalism here. They're both heresies. The truth is not in the middle of those two things. We need them both over here as heretical damaging to the gospel, and set over here by itself the gospel. And that's what I'm calling here lawfulness, lawfulness. Okay, it's a legitimate word for us to use. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. Okay, so ding, 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 ding. Okay, so commandments, good. Jesus said, you want to prove your love for me, keep my commandments. Now, Obviously, we can preach a whole sermon on the word my and whether or not that refers to the Old Testament commandments. I would argue that it does. 
but as you hear me say all the time in this pulpit, as Christians, New Covenant believers, this side of the cross, we always have to read the scriptures through the Jesus lens. So we don't read the Old Testament as Israel. We read the Old Testament backwards, if you please, through the cross of Christ, asking ourselves, how then does this apply to me on this side of the cross, based on what Jesus has done, namely, in Matthew chapter 5, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And I, I run that simple syllogism, but profound syllogism past you all the time. Jesus has fulfilled the law. I'm in Jesus. I have fulfilled the law in the eyes of God. Somebody say amen. Because that's really good news. That's really good news. Read Colossians this afternoon if you want the whole, Paul's whole theology about the law being nailed to that tree and no longer able to stand against us, though the enemy's certainly going to try. Today, we take up the ninth commandment, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And by now, I hope you've got the rhythm of what we're going to do. We're going to look first at what exactly this means and talk about some of its implications. And then in the back half, uh, we'll talk about what, it's, what it forbids and what it requires. But let me, let me give you the more or less theme statement here. A command, this ninth commandment, at its heart, and every single sermon you've heard so far on the Ten Commandments has had something about the heart in it. Because at the end of the day, this is where it's all driving for the heart. It's not just external behavior. It's not, Jesus did not come to modify your behavior. I've got wonderful teachers in New York Christian Academy with education, with master's degrees, with certifications that can modify your behavior as good as anybody. Jesus did not die simply to modify your behavior, to make you a better version of you. Jesus came to raise the dead, Amen. which is why we must die to self before we can even entertain new life. The commandment, the ninth commandment, at its heart forbids character condemnation. Just give you a couple of important words. The ninth commandment at its heart forbids character condemnation. And instead, at its heart, requires truth promotion. I'm going to juxtapose these two things and talk about it. I'm playing on the word condemnation and promotion. Okay, so instead, what this commandment's going to do is it's warning us against condemning a neighbor, and what it's requiring us to do is to promote our neighbor. Okay, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. First, let's take up the question, what does it mean to bear false witness against your neighbor? And again, like the other commandments over the last several weeks, it's a little bit of a duh. Like, oh, don't lie. Don't lie. That's what the ninth commandment is. But it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Within the immediate narrow context, which is what we always try to understand, what did it mean when it was first written down for the first hearers, for the first readers? So within this narrow context, to bear false witness against your neighbor is to distort the truth. It's at the core of this commandment. It's a distortion of the truth. It's to act deceptively in such a way as to harm your neighbor. That's our working definition. Okay? To bear false witness against your neighbor is to distort distort the truth, to act deceptively in such a way as to harm your neighbor. Your neighbor being 
anyone with whom you come in contact. It's not necessarily, but it does include the person who lives on the other side of the fence, assuming you have one in your little plot of earth where you live. It does include that next-door neighbor. But it extends beyond that. Your neighbor is in your family. Your neighbor might even be in your own house. Your neighbor is uh, in your place of vocation and so forth. Here's how Proverbs 25.18 sums it up. It's pretty powerful, Proverbs 25.18. A man who bears false witness, generic man, it includes women too, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor, listen to this, is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Proverbs 25.18. Well, I did that. I did that one when I wrote it down earlier this week. I read that over and over again. A war club. Have you ever seen an ancient war club? It's like a telephone pole with spikes on it. To give false testimony against a neighbor, you may as well beat them to a pulp. That's what, that's what Solomon is, you know. Solomon's doing this. Hey, wake up. You think fudging, you think lying, you think calling out your neighbor is... One of those, as Jerry Bridges calls them, one of those little respectable sins. You have a war club in your hand. You have a sh- you're, 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 you're drawing the bow. You've got a sword. He has my attention. Implication. What are the implications for us today? The implications about the ninth commandment is that um, it makes us despise the truth. It causes us to pervert justice. It's a big deal for God. It's a really big deal. You just turn a couple of pages and you get to Exodus 23 and verse 2. Here's here's what he says, Moses, to the people, unpacking this for us. Exodus 23, let's start with one. You shall not spread a false report. Don't gossip. Don't lie. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Verse 2, you shall not fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. This is Moses explaining to his people how to maintain order in a society. Don't run with the herd to testify so that another part of the herd or another individual gets taken down unjustly. Justice matters mightily to God. To break the ninth commandment is to despise truth. It is to pervert justice. Leviticus, which I've been quoting regularly because Leviticus takes up these law codes and applies them. So in Leviticus 19, verses 15 and 16, it sounds like this. You you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, 15 and 16. So as you can see, and it's it's rather evident, that to break the ninth commandment is to literally attack the fabric of the society. 
And how appropriate in our world today where we're just all wringing our hands about what exactly the truth is, about whether or not there is any justice anywhere in the world, and on and on we go. To lie is to begin to pull the string of the fabric of all of society. And you think about it. If you can't trust somebody to tell the truth, then what hangs together? If you can't be trusted to tell the truth, how long do you think your relationships are going to work? Unless you think, and this is one of the things, one of the drums I've been beating, the Ten Commandments are organic. They're all part of a whole. You break one, you break them all. And to sin against God's image bearers is at the end of the day to sin against him. That's why he says in Leviticus 19, don't do this, I am the Lord. He's basically saying to his people, you, you bear false testimony, you put me in the dark and look in my face and lie to me. It's powerful. So tied together are these ten. Uh, this is what happens when you break the ninth. Jen Wilkin has written a new devotional on the ten words. I'm gonna, let me read this one brief paragraph for you just to show you. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. As the third word bade us to honor God's good name, the ninth bids us to honor the good name of our neighbor. Just as we must not misuse the name of the Lord our God, we must not use, misuse the name of those created in his image. The ninth word builds on the fifth, for it is impossible to honor our elders if we speak falsely about them. The ninth word builds on the sixth, for many who would never contemplate murder commit character assassination without a thought. The ninth word builds on the seventh, for no one enters into adultery without first having lied about the worth of another. The ninth word builds on the eighth, presenting us with an additional angle on thievery, for certainly bearing false witness is identity theft. And the ninth word, as we'll see next week, prepares us to receive the tenth word, you shall not covet. Isn't that a powerful paragraph? You think about it? Think about how those things hang together. It's amazing. And wait, wait to see what next week looks like because some will argue, and I'm becoming more increasingly inclined to this, that the 10th is situated as the 10th because it really encapsulates all of it. That every other commandment prior to that, one to nine, is actually a form of coveting. We'll talk more about that, God willing, next week. As I mentioned to break the ninth commandment is to sin not only against his image bearers, but against God himself. It's to assault his character. Here's what one of the rabbis wrote a number of years ago. A witness who testifies falsely against his fellow, who bears the image of God, is considered as one who testified against God himself. Can you imagine? That's a, that's a powerful way to think about it. You think about testifying against God. Job tried it. You can ask him how that went. I take you to Proverbs 6 to ground some of what it is that I'm saying here right now. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 16. Very, very brief passage here. But this is, if you please, this is the Bible's warning against hate speech. How many times did you hear hate speech in the news this week? And granted, hate speech has become this wide. Whereas 
I, I can be accused of hate speech now the way I'm preaching. So be it. But I'm talking legitimate hate speech. Here's what the Bible has to say about that. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Yea, seven that are an abomination to him. Here they are. Haughty eyes, that's pride. Lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Here it is in 19 of Proverbs 6. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Solomon writes and says to us, six things, yea, seven, that God hates. It's one of the reasons why those of us who have been and are parents get to work real early on making sure our children tell the truth. How many times did I tell my daughter from I don't know how young till today, not that I have to remind her about this much anymore, but how many times did I I tell her to tell the truth regardless of what it cost you? Because to lie is to create two problems. Take your medicine, move on. It's deep within our fabric. This is what the scriptures have to say against hate speech. We don't want to stay here. We want to move on. We want to move into the new covenant. We're going to do that through Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that in just a moment as we finish up. Ephesians 4.25 is going to carry us there. And the talk about putting aside falsehood and instead speaking the truth in love to one another. So it is that linking verse that's going to take us from character condemnation to truth promotion in obedience to the ninth commandment that God has given to us out of his love for us. So let's briefly, quickly, on the back side of this now, take more specifically what the ninth commandment forbids. It forbids all forms of character condemnation, either passive or aggressive. Now, wait a minute, I've heard those words before somewhere. You're right. Last week I introduced this idea of passive and aggressive stealing. And now this week, we're going to talk very briefly about passive and aggressive bearing of false witness. Do you know that maintaining silence when you should speak is a breaking of the ninth commandment? You know, right? In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 7, you know this is a time for everything under the sun. And Ecclesiastes 3, 7 says there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. The ninth commandment is broken when we reverse those two things. When you're silent, when you should speak, and when you speak, when you should be silent. Passive, a passive violation of the ninth commandment is remaining silent when you should speak. Here's how it's stated in the Old Covenant. In Leviticus 5, in verse 1, it says, If anyone sins right out of the, right out of the gate, declaring whatever it is that's going to follow this now is sin. If anyone sins, why? Because... They do not speak when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about. So you're hanging around the town square and Joe is going to court and he's got this, this list of things that are being brought to him but you know, brought about him, but you know Joe and you know that at least some of those things are not true. If you just keep going on your merry way and you don't stand up for Joe, your silence is a breaking of the ninth commandment. 
If anyone sings because they do not speak, when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or heard, they will be held responsible, is what Leviticus 5.1 says. You should be asking a question, does that apply to me as a New Covenant believer? Now, obviously, the judicial context is different, but the idea remains the same for you and for me. If you turn a blind eye to something against someone you know to be false, you are contributing to that sin. Martin Luther King Jr., one of his most famous lines, said, In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. There's an aggressive form as well to the violation of the ninth commandment. It is speaking when you should be silent. It is speaking falsely when you should tell the truth. False witness, listen to this now. I take this from Westminster, the confession that I've been pouring over in these last nine weeks. It's a fantastic document that just goes right into the marrow of your bones. Oh, they do not leave a stone unturned. Ask my wife. I've been reading it some of it. This is the Ronsley household during the course of the week. Pastor Mark walks around with the Westminster Confession of Faith, reading this heavy 16th, 17th century English to my wife while she dutifully listens to her husband go on and on and on and on. Then she goes into her confessional and repents for all the sins that I've just made her aware of. False witness includes the, all forms of the following. Condemnation. Gossip. Judgmentalism. Slander. Even some forms of flattery. Another window into the Ronsley household, Saturday evenings, theological discussions before we fall asleep with one another. My wife pushes me back a little bit when I say flattery is a sin. She said, all forms of flattery? I said, well, give me an example. She said, well, if I say to my friend that that yellow dress flatters you, did I just sin? I said, good point. She also said to me, I called my friend the other day. She said, I'm flattered that you think of me and called. Did my wife sin? She did not. But flattery, the dark side of flattery, is about manipulation that shows itself as truth. And oftentimes, I've seen it over and over and over again in my counseling, that men tend to be the better flatterers than women. And men often flatter a woman because he wants something. Tell them what they want to hear, and you'll get what you want. There's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Paul had this going on in Corinth. It's a great passage, and he gives us a lens into the local church that's just messing up with this ninth commandment. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking, speaking, follow him now, speaking how? In Christ. So Paul, speaking in Christ, and we have to ask Paul, what are you doing, Paul, speaking in Christ? And all for your upbuilding, beloved, okay? So here's Paul giving us a paradigm. Paul speaking, he's praying that his words are in Christ, which means they're spirit-filled and spirit-led. To what end? Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he writes with one purpose, to build them up in the faith. That is a regular prayer of mine. Every single week, 
in my walking, in my praying. I'm asking the Lord to help me speak the truth in love so that you will be built up in the holy faith. Full stop. And I take the paradigm right here from Paul. That if you're speaking, if I'm speaking, it ought to be infused by the power of the Spirit of God in Christ for the upbuilding of those who are hearing. Now ask yourself, and it's a difficult question, and believe me, I've already had myself shredded a half a dozen times this week. Ask yourself, when you open your mouth to talk about somebody, maybe even in this past week, have those words been upbuilding? And if that person that you had cut down is sitting in your, coffee, in your living room at that coffee table with you, would, that have, would they have walked out and said, boy, you encouraged me today? It's a tough questions. They're really tough questions. And I stand before you, mea culpa. Getting better. But it's not all gone. It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. This is still 2 Corinthians 12, 19 and 20. For I fear, it's a good pastor right here, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Paul's being a good pastor here. He's got the spiritual x-ray machine of the, of the Holy Scriptures. That's what he's doing. He's wheeling the cart into the room, and he's putting the Word of God over the patient, and he's running the radiation. And he's looking at it and wondering what it is he's going to find when he shows up finally to see the patient. What does the x-ray power of the Holy Scriptures say about your heart? about my heart. Paul obviously got this from Jesus. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That's why around here, when we preach and when we teach, we go after the heart. Your mouth gives us, your mouth gives us a read of what's going on in here. You hear me say this all the time. When I've got kids in my office, I promise you, Pastor Mark, I'll never say that again. I said, well, I appreciate you promising me that you'll never say that again. I said, but my greater concern is the source out of which this came in the first place. Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that's what defiles a person. Every other word out of your mouth can be an F-bomb, but Jesus is going to look right past that and say, it's not the F-bomb that's defiling you. He said, it's the rot that's in your heart that's making you use that in the first place. He said, that's what I want to get at. I can put a shine on the apples with worms on them, but it's not going to make them edible. I need to go to the root. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder. Listen to the Ten Commandments here. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, Slander, these are what defile a person. You heard me in the opening prayer quote James chapter 3. James 3, 1 to 12, the entire section. Ask Laura, she's the James scholar in the room. James chapter 3, 1 to 12, all about the tongue and its power. With it, 
We sing hallelujah, glory to the Lord. With it, we get in our car and drive away and curse the first person that cuts us off. Same mouth. James, Jesus' half-brother, says this cannot be. This cannot be. Did you know that in the United States of America last year, 15 million people, 15 million, had their identity stolen? Some studies that I looked at this week told me that every two seconds in the United States, somebody's identity is stolen. It made me sit back in my seat and it made me wonder on a spiritual level what the data would show. How often do identities get stolen in the body of Christ because of what comes out of our mouths in violation of the ninth commandment? One of the biggest lies you've ever been told is that sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. You're looking at a man who's got a few miles on the tires right now, and I can tell you from firsthand experience that an awful lot of people have gone through an awful lot of Kleenex in my rooms, not because they've been beaten, unfortunately I've seen some of that, but because they've been verbally abused. Don't tell me that words don't hurt. Some of us in this room still bear the scars. So what then does the ninth commandment require? Well, it requires the flip side of this coin, all forms of truth promotion, of promoting the good name of our neighbor. How do I do that? We'll, we'll bring it to a close right here. We do it by showing love. I am going to read for you right now a portion of 1 Corinthians 13. Don't roll your eyes and don't think that this is a cliche wedding passage. Stop and listen to this and ask yourself, which is I've been doing this week, ask yourself whether or not this is the grid through which you look at your neighbor. Okay? Try it with me. Try it with me. Love is patient and kind. So when you hear the word love, you know the drill. Put your name in it. Put your name. When you hear the word love, put your name. Let's see how we do. Love is patient and kind toward my neighbor. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude toward my neighbor. Love does not demand its own way toward my neighbor. Love is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged toward my neighbor. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out toward my neighbor. Did you notice that the tree fell on the neighbor's house? Good. It's what he deserved. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance toward my neighbor. How do I promote truth? How do I love my neighbor? As Paul says, is the end of the law in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. We show love, and secondly, we speak truthfully, justly, graciously. I told you we'd come around to Ephesians 4.25. Here it is. Ephesians 4.25 and 29 I prayed this over you this week, and I will continue to do that. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, 
having put away falsehood. Did you get it? Having put away falsehood. He's commending them for working hard at speaking the truth. And he talks past tense. You have put away falsehood. Now do this. So let's take this in two steps as we speak truthfully to our neighbor. Let's put away falsehood. If you're holding on to falsehood, you come before your great God before you leave here today, before you fall asleep this afternoon or this evening, and you say, Lord, wherever there's falsehood within my being, please help me to put it away. Don't hang it in the closet so you can go get it tomorrow morning. Put it in the dumpster. So having put away falsehood, now let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Just that simple. Lord, help me to begin to speak the truth to other image bearers. 429. Back in my former church, my former church, back in the church that I formerly pastored, the office manager and I had Ephesians 429 post-it noted on our computer screens. She, so that when she answered the phone, would see it. Me, when I did anything else, I would see it. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome talk, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up. Kate and I, we bandy this verse around every once in a while. We'll challenge one another when we're edgy, when we're irritable, when we've sinned with our lips. And I will ask her and she will ask me, did what you just say build me up? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth except that which is for building up. Husbands, when was the last time something came out of your mouth that built up your wife? Wives, yeah, he's slow taking out the garbage, but... When was the last time something came out of your mouth that built them up? Are you the Proverbs dripping faucet that makes it more appealing to her husband to live on the corner of a roof than in a house with a nagging wife? Man, I'm not going to let you off the hook because if your wife's nagging you, you probably deserve it. And all the women in the building said, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. It is such a powerful image. Your mouth is to be a grace dispenser. Constant prayer of mine, Lord, whenever I open my mouth, let grace come out. Let no corrupting talk come out, only that which is good for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. We show love, we speak truthfully, justly, graciously. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Be a person of your word. You say you'll do something for somebody, do it, even if it costs you something. Even if a better opportunity comes forward. The number of times I've had to help my daughter 
other people as well. Plans made with a friend, and all of a sudden, last minute, they get ditched because something better came up. We've held, over the years, we've held our daughter's feet to the fire on that because she's had those situations where, Dad, I made this promise a month ago, but now this, I got tickets for, I said, honey, your word is gold. It's going to cost you something. You're going to forego seeing the show you've wanted to see now for years because you made a promise. That's how you love your neighbor. That's how you, that's how you keep the ninth commandment. We move from character con- condemnation to truth promotion. In two steps, I'm done. Let me first say to you that as followers of Jesus, expect, expect to be on the receiving end of the violation of the ninth commandment. Expect to be on the receiving end of false testimony. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Man, does, it hit, does the rubber hit the road right there? Because some of you in this room have been reviled. Some of you in this room have been on the receiving end of false witness, of false testimony. There's a lot of it going on within Christendom right now. Just this week, I read a whole article about how one brother pursued another brother who was, who was promoting conspiracy theories and slandering another brother. The brother who was being slandered graciously, gently, with another, went to this person and said, what you're saying is entirely false. Here's the proof of that. You are assassinating my character in public. I would appreciate an apology. And you know what he did? The brother who had been offended did the right thing. He then took the high road and walked away and left it with the Lord. If he had Matthew 5 in his mind, he was rejoicing because he knew that his reward in heaven was great. See, for you and for me, it's not about getting even here on earth. It's not. You're going to end up, you, you will end this life as a loser. Deal with it. If you think that before you go out, you're going to get every score settled, forget about it. That's okay. Leave it with the Lord because your reward eternally is in heaven. And when, you, when, that, when your eyes are on that prize, you're not going to get terribly worked up about being reviled. As a follower of Jesus, expect to be on the receiving end of false testimony. Now watch where this ends. Secondly, as a follower of Jesus, expect to be on the receiving end of true grace. That we may overcome evil with good. Expect to be reviled. Expect from your Savior true grace. That you can overcome evil with good. Here's the most amazing thing. It was, it was one of those moments for me. It's one of the reasons why I love preaching because God takes me into places as well. And I see things with different eyes when, when they're built around different contexts. The passage that came to mind was Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 59. It's Jesus' trial. And the whole trial is about Jesus being reviled and about false accusations being, met, being brought against him. False accusations that sent him 
to the cross. Think about this. Think about the power of this irony. That the one who did not retaliate and accepted being reviled and falsely accused went to the cross so that when it happened to you, you would be able to overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, this is the absolute core of the gospel. That this one would absorb being falsely accused on our behalf and in that false accusation being led to die so that he would be victorious over all other reviling and false accusations. So when you've done your due diligence with those who want to revile you and condemn you, you take a step back and you remind yourself of what your Savior has done in the face of what you are experiencing. Because that experience probably is not going to lead you to death like it did him. But the glorious paradox of the Christian faith is that life came from death. And in so doing, fulfilled the law so that you're free. So that you're free not to settle scores. You're free to pray for the coming of the kingdom and the hallowing of God's name. You're free not to take vengeance into your own hands. You're free, as Jesus said, to display your love for him and to your neighbor by keeping his commandments. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word for you today because of what Jesus has done for us. We'll give you thanks, Father, for this glorious word. We'll give you thanks for the patience and kindness of the saints that are here this very day, Father. I pray, I pray now that you take this as you pull back this x-ray machine. I pray that as we receive the report from the good doctor himself, that we would, that we would seek the right course of treatment, that we would give ourselves over to him, that we would be mindful of the price that he has paid on our behalf, that we would be free from any petty attempt to even the score, and so do, in so doing, break the ninth commandment. Jesus, we love you. Help us to keep your commandments. Amen.